0: The thing I want you to note today is this, to make marriage work, you must, what, focus on yourself. That's a kind of a strange statement, isn't it? Because normally when you come to church, we're always told to pay attention to other people, to serve other people, to learn to get outside of ourselves and to care about someone else. And and that's all true and it's valuable and right. But when it comes to relationships and especially marriage, if your marriage is going to improve, it really starts with you. It's all about you. Would you say together with me, it's all about me. Because if you don't get you right, if you don't handle you right, if you don't know how you need to handle the relationship the right way, then everything else is going to be a mess. And so when I use that phrase, marriage is about you focusing on yourself, I'm not talking about becoming egocentric and self-centered. I'm really talking about paying attention to you, getting your life right, becoming healthy in yourself. Because if you become healthy and strong spiritually and emotionally and relationally, you bring health into the relationship. And so so as a part of this idea to make marriage work, you must focus on yourself. Today, I'm going to give you three action steps that will help you to do this. How do we actually properly focus on ourselves? Three steps that will help us to do that together. Let me take a look at the very first one. Let's look at it together. The first thing that is important to do if you're going to focus on yourself is to stop the blame game. The key word there is the word blame. The reason that we engage in the blame game is because it goes back to our sinful heritage. We have to understand that this is a part of our tendency. We have a tendency to point our fingers at other people instead of taking responsibility for what we need to do in our own lives. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, this was a marriage created by God. If there ever was a marriage created in heaven, it was Adam and Eve. Would you agree? Eve was taken out of Adam's side. There was never a marriage that was more put together by God than this marriage between Adam and Eve. Two people, if you might say, that were meant for each other. And there they are in this relationship. You would think that everything's going to go well. It's going to be beautiful for the rest of their life. But God gave them a, an order. God said, here's my command. There's a tree in the middle of the garden of the Eden called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of that tree because it will create death in you. And Adam and Eve ate of the tree. And sin began to be born in them, birthed in them. And out of that sin came what we're going to see related to the blame game. Let me pick up the story in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse number 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now notice this. Both people, what did they do? Adam, Eve ate, and Adam ate. Both of them sinned. Both of them missed the mark with God. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. In other words, they're trying to cover over their sin. They realize now that we've done this wrong, something has happened, our innocence has been lost, we realize that we have violated God's command. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, sin makes you hide from God. Sin makes you run from God. Sin says, you know what, let me get away from God. I'm afraid of what he's going to do. But you never need to be afraid of God when you've made a mistake. Instead of running from God, you ought to always run to God when you've messed up. But Adam and Eve didn't get this. So they're hiding and they're running from God. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God always comes looking for you when you've messed up your life or made some mistakes. God doesn't throw you away. He comes looking for you because he loves you. And he answered, Adam answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Let me stop there for a moment. It is a simple, straightforward question, is it not? God says, Adam, let me ask you a question. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? Would you all agree that's a straightforward question that needs a straightforward answer, right? Why was God asking him that question? Because God wanted him to own the responsibility of his mistake. God was not there to judge him in the sense of creating punishment for him or to make him feel bad about what he'd done. He's there to get him to confess what he'd done so there could be redemption in his life. Now, I want you to notice how Adam responded to this very simple yes or no question. How did Adam respond? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So God said, Adam, did you eat from the tree? And Adam said, the woman made me do it. Not only the woman made me do it, but he adds this. The woman you put here made me do it. So he's blaming the woman, and he's also blaming God. God, I would not have done this. God, I promise you, I would have never done this had it not been for that woman. And by the way, you put her in my life. Everything was going well until this lady shows up. She's the one that made me do this. And so what you see initially from Adam, what do you see him doing? Blaming. He's playing the blame game. Now, before we get too excited about Eve's role in this, let's see how Eve handles it. Are you ready? Then the Lord God said to the woman, verse 13, what is this you've done? The woman said, read with me, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. So here's Adam. Adam says, the woman made me do it. And Eve says, the devil made me do it. Nobody wants to take responsibility and since the beginning of time because of our sinful nature, All of us have the tendency when there are problems and issues that exist in any realm of life and certainly in our relationships, the tendency that we have is to blame our problems on someone else. We've got this marriage problem because of him or because of her. And we don't own responsibility. And the problem is, is that when you and I blame someone else, it's always counterproductive. It never results in any kind of resolution because here's what I want you to see. Blame is always viewed as an Attack, And anytime there's an attack, what do you do when someone attacks you? You defend, right? You always defend when you're attacked. We call it the fight or flight syndrome, right? Anytime you're afraid of something or there's an attack coming your way, it is fight or flight flight. And that's exactly what happens in marriages. There's a fight that exists when there's a blame going on or a flight. We run away from each other and there's never anything that is productive that happens because of this communication breaks down. There's no resolution to problems and issues and situations that we're dealing with because of all of the defensiveness that becomes a part of the blame game. We end up arguing back and forth as to who is wrong, who's at blame for the situation. It is not productive. And what happens oftentimes, listen closely, what happens a lot of times is one blame turns into another blame, which turns into another blame, and then over years and months and years and decades couples get stuck in this blame. And perhaps that's where you are today, that you're stuck in your marriage, pointing the finger at one another, thinking, you know, it's his fault. No, it's her fault. And you're stuck in this impasse of blame. Jesus said something about this. Jesus talked about this tendency that we all have to blame, and I want to take you to Matthew chapter 7, and let's see what Jesus had to say about it. I want you to read this together with me at all of our campuses, Matthew 7, beginning in verse number 1. Refuse to be a critic full of bias toward others, and judgment will not be passed on to you, for you'll be judged by the same standard that you've used to judge others. The measurement you use on them will be used on you. Let me stop there before we go further. For you, you'll be judged by what? The same what? Standard that you've used to judge others. In other words, if you're pointing your finger at them, as perhaps you've heard before, every time you point your finger at someone in blame, there are three fingers pointing back at you. Every time you point your finger in blame, you have responsibility yourself. The measurement you use on them will be used on you. Let's continue to see what Jesus says here. Now read with me. Why would you focus on the flaw in someone else's life and yet fail to notice the glaring flaws of your own? How could you say to your friend, let me show you where you're wrong when you're guilty of even more? I want you to notice something interesting here in the way that Jesus said it. Why would you focus on the... Notice this singular. Why would you focus on the flaw in someone else's life and yet fail to notice the glaring? Plural. He says, you focus in on something that's wrong in someone else's life, and you don't recognize all the many things that are wrong in your own life. He says, let me show you where you're wrong. He says, why why would you say to your friend, let me show you where you're wrong, when you're guilty of even more. Let's go to the next part of this passage. You're being hypercritical and a hypocrite. First, acknowledge your own blind spots and deal with them, and then you'll be capable of dealing with the blind spot of your friend. Notice again, first now do what? Acknowledge what your own blind, what is the word again? Spots, notice it's plural, and deal with them, and then you'll be capable of dealing with the blind spot, okay, singular, of your friend. So Jesus said, you've got to break this cycle of blaming because the cycle of blaming and pointing your finger and judging someone else is not going to create productivity and health and wholeness in your relationships." So my first word of encouragement to you today, if you're going to move forward in your marriage and in your relationships, if you're going to make your marriage work, you've got to focus on you. To focus on you, you've got to stop pointing the finger at somebody else you have to stop the blame game. The second action step that is essential. If you and I are going to focus on ourselves appropriately, we have to stop what? Playing God. Playing God with other people really involves, I think, three or four things. Let me talk about When you're playing God with someone, it means what you're doing is, I'll give you some words here, it means that you're trying to somehow convict them of some failure on their part. In other words, I want to make them feel bad for what they're doing, okay? I want to convict them and let them see how bad they really are. And as a part of convicting them, you want to convince them that they're wrong, okay? And in the process you want to convert them, you want them to change into the person that you want them to be, convert or change. And ultimately the problem with playing God is what you're trying to do is you're actually trying to control people because when you when you try to manipulate people in certain ways and get them to do what you want them to do and you're trying to make them feel bad for their behavior, and you're, you're trying to change them in some way. What you're doing is you're engaging in in, in control tactics in their life, and when you engage with con, in control tactics in life, you do it in different ways. Sometimes we do it by shaming people, making them feel ashamed of how they're living, and sometimes we do it by nagging them. Sometimes we sermonize. We give them these sermons about how they ought to change, and we get in this engagement, of trying to somehow make the person become different. And when we do this, listen, when we do this, we're actually getting in the way of God. You can't change anyone. I can't change anyone. Only God can change people. And so when you and I are sermonizing and nagging and, and hounding someone about things, we want them to change in their life. We're, we're playing their conscience for them. Then what happens, we're actually getting in the way of God talking. to you them. Know, in some situations, people can't even hear what God's trying to say to them because of what you're saying to them. Your voice is so loud they can't hear the voice of God because you're trying to control and manipulate them to become the person that you want them to be. So here's the issue. You've got to stop playing God with people because you and I are not God. Amen? Can we all just resign today from trying to play God? Now, in the Bible, we very clearly find in the New Testament as well as in the Old and various places specific instructions that are given to both husbands and wives about what they are to do and what we are as husband or wife to focus upon. And Peter does a great job with this in 1 Peter chapter 3. And as we get ready to read this, I want to remind you that Peter's going to talk to both husbands and wives. He's going to address them. Peter was a married man himself. He had, we know he was married because he had a mother-in-law. So we know he was married. The Bible speaks of, uh, of Jesus going to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And so we realize that he is a married man. He's speaking from experience. and He's giving us God's word. Would you agree with me today that if we want some answers to life's issues, we ought to consult the Bible? Amen. The Bible's going to give you the answers, okay? So let's look at the Bible and see what we ought to do. Instead of playing God with our husband or wife, what should we do? Now, he talks, first of all, to the wives here. So this is for all the ladies. So why don't the ladies read together with me? Let's see how you can read. Men, just stay quiet right now, all right? Ladies, are you ready? You're going to have to read aloud because I'm a man. I can't read with you, all right? So all the ladies, start reading. Somebody take the lead. Wives, go ahead. They will be one. I got to help you. Okay. By your respectful, pure, your will speak to them than any words. Did you hear that in the midst of all that cacophony of noise just then? Okay. Did you get that? Let me read it for you. Wives fit in with your husband's plans for if they are, if they refuse to do what? Come on, folks. If they refuse to listen. Not a man in the world guilty of that, right? Okay. If they refuse to listen when you talk to them about the Lord, okay? That's trying to change him in some way. They will be won by how? Your respectful, pure sermons. Your respectful, pure nagging. Is that what it says? No. By your what? Respectful, pure what? behavior not the words that you speak not the nagging that you do not the sermons you preach not the little brochures you leave around the house for them to read okay that's not going to change them what's going to change them your respectful pure what behavior okay your godly lives will speak to them better than any words better than any words okay better 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 than any words so he's teaching wives from Scripture, this is the Holy Scriptures. This is God's word to us for instruction. Now, that's to the wise. But Peter did not stop there. You go down to verse number seven. What's the first word in verse number seven? Husbands. Exactly right. So now he's going to talk to us, guys. Okay. So all you ladies, be really quiet right now, and I don't want all the men to read this together with me. I'm going to help you. Okay. Husbands, you in turn must treat your wives with tenderness, viewing them as feminine partners who deserve to be honored, for they are co-heirs with you of the divine grace of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Woo! back it up for a minute. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. My goodness, I see that. I want to pay attention to what came before that. Would you agree? I want my prayers to be answered. How about you, right? I want God to answer my prayers. And so if my prayers have the potential of being hindered, I better back up here and see what's going to cause this problem. And what's causing the problem sometimes in our prayers not being answered is our attitudes, our behavior toward our wives. So husbands, here's our job is to, to treat our wives with tenderness, to view them with as partners who deserve to be what honored. Okay. For they're not, no, 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 this. they're not inferior, they're co-heirs with you of the divine grace of life. And again, we do this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. The reason that I brought both of these verses uh, to our attention today is I want you to see that the Bible is very specific in talking to us about how we are to live and the responsibilities that we are to accept individually and to stop playing God. Peter calls both the husband and the wife to focus on themselves, not focus on changing their spouse. So, stop playing God. Now, let's go to the third action point today that will help us in our marriages. Adjust your what? Expectations. Expectations are, to give you a definition for them, expectations are anything that you anticipate or believe should be happening in a relationship. They're all kind of expectations we have in a marriage. I've listed on your notes 12 of them. You have expectations about affection, physical intimacy in the, in the relationship. You have expectations about household responsibility. Who's going to take out the trash and when they're going to do it. I mean, you know, the house does not clean itself, right? So you're going to have some expectations regarding who will do that. Finances. How are we going to spend our money? Generally, when it comes to marriage, a, a spender marries a saver. And so there's a conflict, okay? Let's, buy, let's have a good time. Life is meant to be enjoyed. No, let's save money. And so there's this conflict that has expectations. Then there's a, this conflict related to attention. How much attention are we going to give to one another? How much time we're going to spend together? Conflicts related to extended family relationships, parenting and discipline. How are we going to raise these kids? Holidays. How are we going to spend our holidays and vacations? Entertainment. you got expectations about all this stuff. Work. How many hours we're going to work? And who's going to work where? And what's going to do? be a part of this world. Of our life and what our spiritual pursuits going to be? How often are we going to go to church? Are we going to be involved in a small group? Are we going to tithe? Are we going to be what are our goals in terms of this? Handling conflicts and disagreements. Am I going to be the fighter or the flighter? How will I do this? And then ultimately, trying to determine how you're going to complete each other or complement each other. You're, you're trying to work two into one. So, all these expectations can cause problems in your relationship, and they can cause problems, especially if they fit each one of these six categories. They can cause problems, especially if your expectations are unrealistic, that you're expecting someone to do something that they're not able to do. They also become a problem when they're unfair. You're expecting to do something that someone to do something for you that they that's just not fair to ask them to do. They can become very big problems for you when you expect someone to do something that is uncommunicated. They don't have an idea that you're expecting them, and so you're you're actually expecting them to read your mind so they will know what you expect of them. And then when it's unnegotiated, even after you've communicated, you haven't talked it through as to as a conversation about how it's going to be processed in those 12 areas or further. When it's unadjusted, I will tell you something. In marriage, I promise you, you've got to learn. If you've been married more than 15 minutes, you better learn how to make adjustments. Because adjustments are a part of the journey if you don't adjust to one another and adjust your expectations because this is vital to the interaction that you're going to have. And when you're unaccepting, if you if someone has an expectation that you feel like is unfair but you don't know how to process it with them and come, come to a place of accepting them and their differences, that's going to obviously be a problem as well. Just a moment, we'll come back to that verse before we wrap this up. But I want to remind you of the value of this, the importance of this in your relationship. Think about you. What expectations am I holding out for my spouse that might be unrealistic, that might be unfair, that might be uncommunicated, that might be unnegotiated, that might be unadjusted, that might be unaccepting? Because if I'm uh, if I'm bringing these kind of expectations into the relationship, there's going to be a problem. we have got to think about my expectations and make sure that they're valid and real and properly communicated and negotiated. Now, that being said, I want to say one more thing before we go to the last verse. I'm almost done today. No matter how great your marriage is, your spouse is never going to meet all of your expectations. And what I want you to see today is this, ultimately what you and I need to do in addition to handling these expectations in communication with one another is that ultimately we need to put our expectation upon God because God is the only one who will never fail you, okay? I hope you're hearing that this morning. That's not just, listen, that's not just a nice thing for the pastor to say in church. Oh, he's supposed to say stuff like that because he's supposed to talk about God. No, I'm telling you the real deal is God will never disappoint you. The real deal is other people are going to disappoint you no matter how good they are, how great they are, how amazing they are. They're going to disappoint you, so you better have your foundation on something beyond human relationships or your life is going to be an up and down roller coaster of emotion all the time. One day you'll be happy, next day you'll be sad, another day you'll be happy, next day you'll be sad because it's all going to rise and fall on who's disappointing you or not disappointing you at some point in time. You need a rock that goes beyond a human relationship. Relationship. I'm preaching this morning, all right? Are you hearing me? Okay. And that's why the psalmist said I want you to look at what the psalmist said. The psalmist David gives us these words, and if anyone had known anything about disappointments, David did. He was disappointed by Saul who sought to kill him. He was disappointed by a variety of things in his own life of mistakes he had made. He was disappointed by his own son, Absalom, who turned against him. He was a man that knew disappointment and betrayal in relationships. But he wrote these words. He says, my soul waits silently for God. What alone for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Let me stop there for a moment. David says, my soul wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. Notice this. He only is my rock. Dear one, let me tell you today, your husband is not your rock. Your wife is not your rock they might be a strong part of your life but God needs to be your rock okay because he's the one that will never shake everything else can shake around you but God never shakes he's the rock my rock and my salvation let's continue to the next section trust in him how often At all times, you people pour out your heart before Him, because God is a refuge for us. The psalmist said, "I've learned this: people come and go, people rise and fall, people uh, people do well and disappoint you. But I've learned this: God will never ever fail me. My expectation is in Him. He is my rock."